Our gospel reading comes from Luke and uh, like I warned you, it's not uh, the reading you might want to expect for Advent. It comes from the last part of a whole section that sounds a bit like this. There will be signs in the sun, the moon and the stars and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads Because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told him a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you. This generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you might have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us. If Advent is the season of waiting, we're not very good at it, are we? If you ordered something and Australia Post hasn't delivered it, as they're not doing as well as they used to do, we can easily get pretty frustrated. And, and learning to wait doesn't come naturally, does it? Ask a child to wait for something and see how far you get. I can measure my levels of anxiety and stress by how reasonable I am about waiting for anything. In line for traffic, in line at the grocery store, anything. If I'm really aware, and most days I'm not, but if I'm really aware, I can say, well, wait a minute, I'm really getting frustrated and anxious about having to wait. Why should I have to wait? I could really pay attention. How did I get here? What's going on inside me? It's a real good marker. And here we are at the very beginning of the year, the way the church works the church year, the way at the beginning of the year and we're told to wait. Doesn't make any sense, does it? And look at the text that we've been given to do our waiting with. More apocalypse. Those of you who are at this church or any church, the 
two weeks ago, not last week, but the week before, we got another dose of this, this time from Mark's Gospel. And Luke, as we know, uh, used the Gospel of Mark for much of its um, uh, material, not all of it, but a lot of it. And it uses this, not verbatim, but in fairly strong bits. So we're getting two doses of the same thing. What's going on? Why do we get a text about the earth shaking, about this in, the, in our image on the wall happening? Why is that going on? And we, we know it's true when we say that the sea and the waves are no longer in our control, if we ever thought they were. Just ask anyone living in a Pacific nation. And if we're fainting from fear and foreboding, we're doing it because of COVID and even in the last 24 hours, a new strain has appeared. And if we were already stressed and worried because we've just opened our borders and we don't know who's got what, now we don't even know even more. So why have we got this text? And when you think about it, has there ever been a time when you think you could read this text and say, well, doesn't mean anything to us. There's no fear or foreboding here. There's no sun signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. There's no people fainting from fear. There's probably never been a time in history when people haven't been able to read this text and say, oh, we can see this happening all around us. And then it says, and then they will see, and there's a quote, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The quote is from the book of Daniel, one of the great apocalyptic writings that basically all these apocalyptic writers base their stuff on. What does it mean? Well, we we generally think it means the return of Christ or what we call the second coming. Um, The Bible doesn't use the term the second coming, but there's lots and lots of material in it about the idea that the first coming of Christ was as a baby in a manger the story we will have at Christmas time. And then there's this idea of a second coming. And the disciples, it seems very clear, believed that that would happen very soon. And that the kingdom that Jesus kept talking about would be established. And the Romans would leave. And the people would be in charge of their own destiny. And it would be a time of great peace, prosperity and justice. And it, of course, didn't happen while they were alive. And, and we know there will be an end. There, there will be an end to history, whether it's the heat death of the sun in seven or eight billion years' time or the slightly earlier event when you and I die, which is the end of the world as far as we know it. But what do we do with these texts, which seem to be um, about a completely different kind of understanding of the world than we've got? Well, first of all, we have to remember that, <coughs> excuse me, this is apocalyptic writing. It's supposed to sound the way it does. It's designed to be emotive. It's designed to be a verbal version of this painting that we've got on the wall. But it's not designed to be taken literally and picked apart and understood literally, just as this painting isn't. I mean, you might ask, why is Shakespeare's statue still up? And, of course, that would take you into a whole realm of thinking about education and about culture. Do those things survive, the artist thinks, even though the rest is destroyed? 
That's up for you to decide. We don't, the artist didn't leave any information about this, about what he thought. But apocalyptic writing is the same way. And apocalyptic writers would be astonished if they thought, as many Christians have done in the 20th century, particularly, were very keen on literalism in the 20th century. Not much before that, but at the end of the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and then later, and in some churches still, the whole idea that this should all be taken literally and read that way took hold and they would be astonished. They would think we were mad. It would be like saying about poetry that it should be taken literally. My love is like a red, red rose. The poet would think you were nuts if you started to unpick the botanical nature of the rose. And I mean, there might be some lovely imagery there, and there probably is, and we've used the poem a lot. Wordsworth would think we were crazy if we understood coming trailing clouds of glory as sort of looking behind you for some kind of emissions out of your exhaust or something. It would be nuts. And apocalyptic writing is the same way. It's about um, the cataclysmic changes in the world and we need to experience it as we would a poem, as we would a painting. <clears throat> and there might be an end to it or we, we don't know. And the Bible, remember, is not a book. It's a collection of books. It's a library. And it's always nuts to say, well, I don't believe what the Bible says or I believe the Bible. That'd be like going to the State Library and saying, I believe the State Library. Well, no, some of the books in there are of great value. Some of them, less so. Some of them contradict other books in the library. That's what libraries do. They're a, they're a conversation put down on paper. And that's what the Bible is, of course. It's a collection. Just because we bound it together doesn't mean anything other than convenience. So there's lots of stuff going on in the Bible about the idea of the end of time or the possibility of this idea of a return of Christ. And they, some of it's contradictory and much of it is very difficult to understand. But let's say, for now, that is a likely possibility, whatever that means. Why then does Jesus give us this parable? Why doesn't Jesus say, look, Look at the painting, if they had it that day. Or, because we get to Luke after the destruction of Jerusalem, which makes this painting look like a cartoon. Why doesn't he say, look, you can see destruction, it's all around us. That's the parable. But he doesn't. He takes the story of a tree. Because what happens in the life of a tree is not deadness, but deadness followed by aliveness and then followed by dormancy, and then aliveness again. That's how trees do their stuff. If you look at any of our trees out here in the winter, nothing's happening. And sometimes you're not sure whether they're alive or not. And then in the spring, pfft. Remember a couple of weeks ago we had some photos that I'd taken of the oak tree out there, just going bang like that, almost overnight. The coming of a new season it's not that obvious, particularly if you're not paying attention. It's not that clear what's going on. Indigenous Australians mark six or seven, depending on different parts of the country, seasons of the, of the year. We have four, and we divide them up mathematically almost, as if there is a time when the day before was winter and the day after is spring, and they've got a much more subtle understanding of the world that they've lived in for a lot longer than us. I wonder what would have happened 
if the first settlers, rather than coming in with that great colonial understanding that we're white, we're right, and they're, well, if they're human at all, what if we'd have done that differently and said, what is this land like? What can you do here and what can you not do here? It would be completely different, wouldn't it? All those ruins that we can see between here and the Flinders Ranges, those magnificent buildings all collapsed, would be a different world that we'd lived in if we were to pay attention. What if Jesus is saying that just like the fig tree and all the trees, he says, they die away but they come again? What if that's what he means by the coming of God? Or if you like, the second coming. What if it's not so much worried about the end of time, the heat death of the sun, or your own death, but about a constant coming and falling away and coming again? What if it's a truth that's never dead, but it's always at a different part of the cycle? And then, you know, there might be an end and all, but our job, our opportunity, our gift is to see the moment in the cycle that we're in. It's not easy to spot. And it's not easy to spot in all the way through the Gospel of Luke. The last, Jesus says in, the Luke's, in Luke's Gospel, shall be first. Everything will be turned upside down. The kingdom, whatever it's like, will be like the smallest seed you can think of. It will be like yeast that permeates the whole dough and changes its character completely. Luke's often called the paradoxical gospel. It's the idea of the kingdom is here and it's not yet. Jesus says this a number of times in Luke's gospel. Other places, other gospels too, but Luke is particularly attuned to this idea of paradox. And, and the paradox of life is not a trying to reconcile in things See, one of the great things that Christianity has tried to say when it's saying itself, when it's speaking about itself well, is there's a recognition of human beings as both extraordinary, glorious, capable of extraordinary, wonderful, generous things, and at the same time, hideous and capable of great evil. And it's not, a paradox is not therefore trying to reconcile those two. A paradox is holding those two things as both true. They are true, and you know it in yourself. Unfortunately, we usually know in ourselves all the bad stuff. We could each of us make a list of our deficiencies and the areas where we've failed and the areas where we're not quite measuring up in the way we think we should be. Not a problem with that. It'd be a long list. Some of us are not so good on the other side of it. But these things are not to be reconciled. They're just to be held. That's how you deal with a paradox. This is true and this is true. So it's true that there's death and destruction everywhere. This painting. And it's true that there's new life bursting out everywhere. Those two truths have to be held in tension. They have to be held as paradoxes. God is always here. God is on God's way. That's the story of Luke. Maybe this helps us understand this very strange verse where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. What if it's 
and I'm not absolutely convinced of this, but I think it kind of tracks along. That's the idea that there's pain and suffering always taking place. And if you're not in pain and suffering today, you're just as likely to be tomorrow, aren't you? Because that is the way the world is. That is the way our bodies are. They're not going to function the way we want them to all the time. What if it's true that that is happening and joy and, as as Jesus uses the word, redemption or a renewal? What if that's happening all the time too? And if we're aware of it, we can carry both those things together. And what if this generation that Jesus is speaking to and all generations are living in that moment all the time? So there's no sense in which a generation will pass away without these things being true in every moment. And that's what Advent's about. It's, we're called to pay attention. If Wordsworth is right, we come trailing clouds of glory. The idea that we come actually already deeply embedded in and invested in the divinity of the world, the star dust that we are made of, the kind of energy of the universe. If that's true of us, even if it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't make it any less true because it might feel like it tomorrow. Because tomorrow you'll wake up having had a better sleep and you won't have a headache and you won't have all those horrible things you had to do yesterday. It might be a better day or it might be worse. So what? Are these things true or are they not true? If they're true, yes, it's going to be harder to remember them. It's going to be harder to live in them tomorrow if you wake up after a rough night's sleep or no sleep with all the horrible things that come to us at three o'clock in the morning. It's going to be harder the next day. But that doesn't make these things any less true. And the purpose of Advent, one of the purposes of Advent, is to be in that expectant waiting, to see it as we see the oak tree out there, now fully in leaf. Now, no idiot can miss it. It's summer. It's out there. I know it's not always that warm and we've had piles of rain which has made it grow even more, but it's clear. But a couple of weeks ago, touch and go. Is the tree coming back or not? Why is there... There are two jacaranda trees out the front of where I'm living and one of them came into blossom immediately. The other one is only just starting to do it now. So it would be easy two weeks ago to have seen this one. That's alive. This one's dead. It's not true. Okay, got to stop. It's one thing. I was, uh, Jane Goodall, the uh, primatologist, it's probably world famous to everyone these days for her work with chimps, um, she's written a new book and, and something to do with hope. I can't remember what it's about. But she's quite elderly now, so it's a sort of a long look back over her life. And anyway, she's been spruiking it on a number of interviews that I've heard. And twice I've heard her tell this story that she said when she was four, she was already trying to pay attention to the world. And once she'd discovered that eggs come out of chickens and they had chickens, uh, she went and she, she said, as a four-year-old, I spent four hours lying on the ground in the chicken coop waiting for the chicken to lay an egg. Now, you've got to say there's a link between that and the life she's lived of paying close attention 
to the lives of chimpanzees, to the tool using of chimpanzees that everyone in her profession told her she was mad. That's nonsense. But she knew, and of course, the natives, the people that she worked with, they'd known for generations anyway. They do use tools, and she changed an entire field of science. But here she is as a four-year-old, lying in a chicken coop, waiting to see a chicken lay an egg. That'll do for me as an image that I'm going to try and take with me through the rest of Advent. Amen.